Hey, Downtown Church, welcome back to 7-Minute Sunday School. Last week, we talked about some of the aspects of the law that strike us as liberating and exhilarating examples of God's justice. But I also acknowledge that when we read the laws that follow the Ten Commandments, like those in Exodus, we often run across laws that don't strike us as being just and righteous. They might even strike us as being backwards or dangerous or oppressive, not least on issues like around women in the community and around slavery. What are we to do with these laws? Well, I want to talk about four points we can make about thinking how to wrestle through these difficult laws and then wrestle through one specific law as an example of how we might read these. And the first thing to say is that law as a genre, what law does is in part limit bad behavior. So while some laws in the Bible encourage good behavior, love your neighbor as yourself, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, quite a lot of law in the ancient world and in our society seeks to limit bad behavior that is pervasive rather than try to eliminate it. We know this is true and it happens in the Bible because when the Pharisees ask Jesus if they can divorce their wives, Jesus says, well, what does Moses say? And they say, Moses allowed us to have a certificate of divorce and divorce our spouses. And Jesus says, Moses gave you that law because your hearts were hard. But God's design, God's intention is for marriages to last. In other words, Jesus is not saying that the law was bad that allowed divorce. He's saying that law was necessary to limit the evils of divorce, but inadequate for righteousness and justice, which requires something more. It's an interesting example because divorce in the ancient world would be often very bad for women, but by requiring a man who wanted to divorce his wife to give her a certificate of divorce, that would create some security for the woman to know where she stood and to ensure that she could get married to someone else. So it limited a pervasive evil rather than seeking to eliminate it. We can think about examples in our own world today. Many of us, myself included, are concerned about things like global warming as a real threat to our world. We know that this is a serious issue and that if, if climate change continues, it could cause enormous suffering to people all over the world. And yet a law that said, okay, tomorrow we're going to eliminate all cars would probably not work. Not only would it not work. It might create a lot of unintended harm. We can't even really imagine it. So we have laws that seek to limit common practices rather than eliminate them because law sometimes seeks to limit bad behavior. And as such, it doesn't give us God's highest vision, but it limits the worst excesses of evil in the community. And that happens in Israel's law too. The second thing to say is that law is more flexible than we think. Scholars are increasingly recognizing that the law codes, like the ones that we find in the Bible, were not the kind of law that we have, where a judge says, okay, here's my situation, I'm going to look up in the law code the exact stipulation, and that's going to tell me exactly what to do. That's the way judges do it in our world. That's not the way they did it in the ancient world. In the ancient world, laws were mainly examples of wise practice in the real world. And so judges would use these law codes to try to figure out what to do, but they wouldn't necessarily have to follow them exactly, and they could use their own wisdom in making decisions. And the third thing to say is that we need to take into account the cultural context. Now, by that, I don't mean that they were inferior and we're superior, and so we should throw out what they thought. What I mean is that the laws work within their own context. I love the laws that say you have to leave food on the edges of your field for the poor, but that wouldn't be very effective in our world today. 
Similarly, in our world today, it it doesn't make sense to us that these laws go to such an extent to make sure that women who are married have a secure place in a household. Some of those laws actually strike us as backwards, but in their world, ensuring that women had a secure place in the household was of vital importance. We can learn things from those laws like we can learn them from the gleaning laws without saying that what we need to do is leave food in the edges of our field or uh, practice uh, the way that we get married and all of that in the exact same way as they did. And the last thing to say about the law is that it's not the last word in Christian ethics. We need to see these laws within the big picture, within the overall story of who God is, of, of what the world is like, what his intentions are for people, and of where scripture takes us towards the kingdom of God and the new heavens and the new earth. So with those four points, let's consider one example that we really don't like, which is some of the laws around slavery. And I'll pick an example that I really don't like from Exodus, a text that really challenges me, makes me uncomfortable, that I frankly wish wasn't there. But I want to read it slowly in light of the principles that we've talked about and see what we can discover. So for the, before we move to a specific text, let's say a few things about the nature of slavery in general in the ancient Near East, in Israel. The first thing is to say that in Israel, slavery was mainly debt slavery. It's mainly one relatively poor farmer who's lent money to another relatively poor farmer who can't repay it. And in that context is indentured to the house in order to repay their debt. It is not primarily chattel slavery, and it certainly isn't the kind of race-based slavery that we saw here in the American South. It's actually hard to tell what's going on in some of these texts about slaves or servants or indentured servants because the same Hebrew word can be used for a number of different factors. In fact, one of the words we use for slave is just the word for work. So it's, it's sometimes hard to tell what's going on. We also should say uh, that for some indentured servants, this would be the best of a bad situation. And a refugee who's not attached to a household, for instance, or a day laborer who could not be secure work every day would be in a much worse situation than some of these indentured servants. So this is a very different world that we're thinking about. But let's look at one of my least favorite texts in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 21, 20 through 21, and then again, 26 and 27, the text talks about what happens if a master beats one of their servants or one of their slaves. And it says, the thing that is so challenging to me and that I don't like is that it says if the master beats their servant and they get up for a day or two, there is no uh, consequence because this, the servant is his property, is the language. The actual Hebrew word there is the servant is his money. What does that mean? Why would that be in the word of God? It's very challenging and indeed troubling. But when we take a closer look, it makes a little bit more sense. You see, this law comes in an entire section dealing with violence between all sorts of people. And the big headline is that if you kill someone, then your life will be taken. Then the text talks about violence that doesn't end in death. If two men fight and one intentionally kills the other, that person's life is taken. But if two men fight and the person is just injured and after a few days they get up and walk around, then the person who harmed them only owes them money for the time that they could not work. Now note, this is not saying that it's good for men to fight. It's just trying to give guidance as to what to do when they do. Then the text turns to these, uh, when, what happens when a master and an indentured servant or a slave fight. It's not recommending that this happen, it's just acknowledging that it does. And in that case, what we learn is that if the slave is killed, 
then they are to be avenged. That means that the master is to be killed if the slave is killed. That puts the slave's life at the same level of value, the servant's life at the same level of value as the master. That is radically different from what we find in the ancient Near East, which saw slaves as being subhuman, and for that matter, in the American South, which saw ideologically slaves as subhuman. So the slave's life is just as valuable as the master's. That's why the master is killed if he kills the slave. And it also explains that really disturbing reference to the slave as his property or his money. The idea is, if two free people fight and one is injured for a few days, the one who hurts him owes him money for his time. But the money that the servant owes to the master for his time is lost to the one who injures the servant. The idea is not that the servant is reducible to money, it's that the lost time uh, is, is lost by the one who harms the servant. And furthermore, just a few verses later, we learn that if when a master and a servant fight, there's any kind of permanent injury done to the slave, such as a tooth knocked out, then that slave is given their freedom immediately. When we read this law this way, it's about trying to work out situations of violence that are not recommended, but that do happen. Moreover, when we compare this law to the ancient Near East, it is radically different. In the ancient Near East, there's all sorts of laws that describe this situation. One master hurts another master's slave. And the question is, how will this master compensate that master? But there are no laws in the ancient Near East, as far as we know, that give the slave rights against their master if their master harms them. So whereas other ancient Near Eastern law codes are concerned with how to protect the master in the case of another master hurting their servant, the biblical law is concerned to defend the rights of indentured servants or slaves against their masters. This is radically different. Now, again, we don't want to live in a society with slavery or indentured servitude. We wouldn't want to move back into ancient Israel, but within ancient Israel and a society where every society that we know of at this time had indentured servitude and slavery, we would certainly rather live in Israel with a law like this than in Canaan or Mesopotamia or Egypt or anywhere else. So this difficult law becomes more understandable in light of this context. And then we find other laws about indentured servitude or debt slaves or slavery in the texts like the ones that limit slavery to seven years or that require you to send out an outgoing debt servant laden with gifts of their own labor, thus turning slavery into something more like wage labor and ensuring that they don't fall back into debt servitude. We get laws like the one that says kidnapping a person for the person of slaving them is also a capital offense. Think what would have happened in the, uh, in, in the modern world in the time of global expansion, if if slave traders had been subject to the death penalty. That's what Exodus requires. Anyone who tries to kidnap a slave for profit is put to death. This prefigures Paul, for instance, describing slave trading as one of the sins alongside many others that stands completely opposite to God's kingdom. Or consider the law in Deuteronomy that says, if a servant or slave escapes and they get to you, let them live wherever they wish. An escaped servant or slave has the freedom to choose where they live in Israel. This is remarkable, given that ancient Near Eastern laws 
often provided capital punishment for people who harbored slaves. If you let an escaped slave get free, you could be killed in many places in the ancient Near East. And for that matter, in this country, prior to the Civil War, there were major stipulations, major consequences for harboring slaves, escaped slaves, even in the free North. So we see that there are many liberating aspects of the text, even as it tries to deal with a terrible situation, a terrible institution, an institution that ultimately Scripture condemns, in my view. But trying to figure out how to move the community towards the kingdom of God, given that that institution was pervasive. At the end of the day, we have to be honest that there are hard pieces of Scripture. There are difficult parts of the Bible, parts we don't understand, parts that we don't like. But in my experience, when we wrestle with these carefully and slowly in conversation with scholars and with others, we discover God's heart for liberation and good news and justice shot right through them. And of course, we want to read these texts in light of the good news of the gospel with which the story of the Bible begins, that all people, men and women, are created in God's royal image and that God himself became a slave and a human slave in order to liberate his people from slavery to sin and slavery to injustice. That's the big story of the Bible. And when we understand how these texts that we're under, we're discovering fit within that, we can discover what they're trying to do and how they might speak to us still in our own world. This has been a, a difficult conversation, I imagine, and it's taken longer than our normal uh, seven-minute Sunday school, and I've still just scratched the surface. So I want to encourage you this week as, as a takeaway to just talk about what we've talked about today with somebody else, to see what questions you still have. If you want to read something, read Deuteronomy 15 and see how it navigates this issue that we've been talking about. And uh, in the meantime, I've also provided a lot of links about questions that we have, scholars talking about questions that we have around slavery, but also around some issues about women. And I encourage you to use those further resources to keep digging if you can. At the end of the day, I think Esau Macaulay is right, that when we wrestle with the Bible long enough, even the difficult parts, it's like when Jacob wrestles with God. We may walk away with a limp, but we also walk away with a blessing. So may God be with you as you wrestle with his word this week, and we'll see you next time.